0: Number 45 of the Between the Cracks Podcast. I'm your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host Chris. Now, Chris, hold your horses, buddy. You're being a little too aggressive for my liking tonight. Before we get to you, I have to make a special announcement. Bud, tonight is a very special episode. We have a guest with us tonight. I took it upon myself to conduct an interview with our resident naval expert. T-Bone! This is our lucky night. We do not have much to do at all. We will record our intro, plug in T-Bone's interview, record our outro, and then we, bud, can wipe our hands clean of episode number 45. Now, with all that said, how's does that make you feel?
1: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, nothing makes me more excited than have to do as little work as possible when it comes to this podcast, so I'm... Quite happy, yes. <laughs> well, I had T Bone on. I, I, as I've told everybody, he's a
0: decorated naval officer, right? I didn't bring my A game to the interview, Chris. Uh, I had the uh, <laughs> I had I had the Wikipedia page open, and I, I assumed that was going to be enough, until uh, T Bone rolled in with about ten pages of notes. He uh, he he takes the uh, the brunt of this load, and he does a fantastic job. Now, Chris, I said I was going to ask you how you're doing, but I'm calling an audible, pal. We don't have time. We are not going to beat around the bush tonight. We are going to get right into tonight's topic because tonight, pal, we are talking about the tragic case of the USS Indianapolis Now, for those of you that don't know, the USS Indianapolis was a Portland-class heavy cruiser for the United States Navy. And it was named after, obviously, the city of Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this. During the interview, you're going to hear T-Bone gives us a great rundown of the history of the ship. He touches upon the construction of the ship, previous missions, and the secret mission that led to the tragedy that we're going to be talking about tonight. On July 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was struck by two Japanese torpedoes. And the ship itself was sunk within 12 minutes of being hit. T-Bone goes into the reason why that happened and some of the uh, effects that the construction of the ship had on that sinking. Now, what makes this story so fascinating and popular in a lot of realms, like we've seen documentaries on it on animal planet on discovery channel on a history channel and whatnot and that's the tragedy that took place after being struck by the torpedoes because uh chris in addition to being struck and hit at actually twelve fifteen a.m in which i learned that uh the military calls that balls 15 chris did you know that i did not yes balls 15 now now um speaking of balls Don't do it. I'll <laughs> ring that fucking alarm. No, okay, I'm going alarm free today, baby. <laughs> so uh, at balls 15, 12 15 a.m., when a torpedoes hit, these guys were not obviously expecting it, right? They did not have time to prep or get ready to go into the water. And with the ship sinking within 12 minutes, many of the life rafts didn't even make it into the water. And the rations at that point were just spread throughout the sea. You can imagine at 12:15 a.m., you are in complete darkness and, you know, maybe moonlight, whatever you have there. And the guys were dealing with so many difficulties. Exposure, you know, obviously. Uh, dehydration. Saltwater poisoning. Some of them were being burned by the oil that was spewing from the ship and, and being blinded by that as well. They're facing so much adversity and on top of that, Chris, shark attacks. Now, there were... An estimated 1,195 crew members aboard. At the end, only 316 had survived. There are reports that anywhere from 20 to 150 perished from shark attacks. You can imagine just how absolutely terrifying that was. Because Chris, uh, we're going to come to find out that this was a secret mission. And... Nobody else knew that this ship was out there, and they did not have any backup. Basically, they were out there alone with no one coming to help, and they were out there for almost five
1: days, Chris. They just just sat there with no rescue in sight, and I cannot imagine floating in ocean water in the pitch black and just hearing thrashing.
0: Some of the survivors were saying that, you know, obviously the sharks were feeding on some of the sailors that had passed away already. I mean, there were even reports that they'd be out there next to their fellow sailor. And then all of a sudden he'd be swooped under, just taken away. Other guys said that basically the sharks were just taunting you. Like during the daytime, they come up and just bump you. Right. And just get get a feel of of if you're still alive, I guess, what kind of fight you're going to put up and then just swim around you. Because they would feed at night, and then they'd come back in the daytime, dude, and just swim around and circle around, and then come back again at night. And T-Bone gets into a a lot of different characteristics of this case, one being the water, dude. Out there in the Pacific where they were, it was crystal clear water, so these guys could see the sharks swimming underneath them. I can't even put it into words how, how... Terrified, I would be like some of the guys, dude. Were just giving up. They took their life jackets off or swallowed salt water and and just wanted it to be over. And I can completely understand that.
1: I even heard reports apparently of, I guess, some of the rations that were uh, left on the on the ship, like spam cans of spam. Yeah. That like like a guy would open the it up and, I guess, as he would be eating it, he ended up attracting sharks to him. So he would, like, they would literally have to, like, all of a sudden chuck the thing away because it was bringing attention. And all it
0: takes is to attract one shark. And if there is food available, man, then, God forbid, there is blood in the water. I mean, you are going to have trouble on your hands, an absolute feeding frenzy. And, uh, unfortunately, that's where the guys of the USS Indianapolis found themselves, man, and... Worst case of all, bro, they were tiger sharks, one of the most aggressive species of sharks. This led to the largest shark attack in history. So, Chris, let's get into T-Bone's interview, and he can give us a very in-depth look at the USS Indianapolis and her crew. So, without any further ado, roll it. Everybody, I am so grateful for everybody being here tonight. With me on this very special episode, who you might remember from our previous episode, Nautical Nightmares, is my dear, sweet, my, 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 would someone say my best friend in the entire world? A guy that I've grown up with and a very decorated naval officer who I will keep his identity a secret until he retires, but our good friend of the show. T-Bone is here. T-Bone, how are you doing? Doing pretty good, buddy. Happy New Year. (laughs) Oh, Happy New Year. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
2: Easy day, man. It's good stuff.
0: All right, man. Well, you know... As I told you, Chris and I were talking about the USS Indianapolis this week, and I thought, who better than to come on here and share some actual pertinent information, rather than listening to two dreams talk about something they don't know about, than you. What we want to do today is just pick your brain a little bit about this USS Indianapolis. Now, we've discussed a little bit of the tragedy, but I, I wanted to get your Point of view on the actual psychological aspect as someone who's actually been out there on the waters we can read about these things and hear about how devastating they are and how intense and how scary they are but until you're actually in a situation like that or you know you have training in a situation like that it's it, it's got to be a, a whole different ballpark i would think right
2: yeah so usn in indianapolis in this um this entire tragedy. This has been the Navy's, the United States Navy, probably every military's worst maritime attack where we lost the most amount of people. And it happened at night and it happened so fast. I don't think any amount of training could prepare you to move that quick. I mean, as we start talking about this, this ship went from up to down super fast.
0: Now, me talking as a civilian, T-Bone, I'm going to say it was at 12.15 a.m. Now, how do you say that in military time?
2: Uh, zero, zero, one, five.
0: Zero, that's how, just zero, zero, one, five.
2: Yep, or balls, five.
0: So you, <laughs> all right, so I like that, balls, five. So yep. at balls, five in the fucking morning, I would think at this point, you know, these guys had finished the mission, it's 12.15 a.m. in the morning. I would assume that most of them were sleeping, they are feeling pretty good, that the mission was complete, and they're headed back to their base, right?
2: They did finish their mission, and um, I'll get into what their mission was. And, and the crazy part about their mission, they didn't even know what they were doing, right? They know they had to bring something from San Francisco, quick hit in Pearl Harbor, all the way over to um, the Marinus Islands out there right by Guam.
0: So these guys take off from San Francisco in 45 compared to you guys taking off, say, from Virginia or San Diego in 2020 or 21, whatever the case may be. I mean, do you go out with the utmost confidence that you're you're trained and you're ready to expect anything that might come your way?
2: Sure. And this ship was, too. Uh, but there's a couple of uh, places that the Navy learned that they messed up. During this entire process, lay it on us. Um, yeah, so well, there. Let me tell the story, and I'll get into it. Okay. But remember, this this was this was at the very end of World War II. Yep. Matter of fact, this was about a month before Japanese surrendered. Okay, and that that goes into what um, what Indianapolis was delivering. So USS Indianapolis is a Portland class heavy cruiser, and what a heavy cruiser is, it's almost like um, if you think of a battleship. Everybody knows, you know, uh, uh, Missouri and, and New Jersey. It's it's a smaller version than that. It's like think of it like a little brother to a battleship. Okay, she was built she was built in Camden, New Jersey, uh, by New York Shipbuilding, and was commissioned fifteen November nineteen thirty two. So let me ask you a quick question: Why is it called a Portland
0: class? And this may sound kind of funny, but then named the USS Indianapolis. Does the city of Portland, Oregon, or Portland, Maine, have anything to do with this?
2: So what what we do when we name ships, and this is all ships, um, the first in that class when they contract that. There's an entire subsection of Congress that comes up with with what they're going to name the ship after. For example, um, with, with the Indianapolis, the Portland class, we were naming it after cities in the United States. Okay. So does that make sense? So you got the Portland, and then you have Indianapolis. And then there are other ones in between.
0: Okay, gotcha. So would you say being named after the city of Portland, that this uh, ship was a real trailblazer?
2: <laughs> yeah well <laughs> yeah so these ships were pretty tough back in that day
0: i do apologize Seabone. continue
2: <laughs> these ships were tough so again she was commissioned 15 november 1932 a uh, pretty big ship she was 610 feet long jesus 60 66 feet um at the beam and that means wide and she drew a max draft um and that means how deep she sits in the water of 24 feet So this ship can go down a maximum of 24 feet in the water. With ships of this size, how many sailors are generally on board? So for this class here, according to um, naval records, this class, when she was built, she was built to hold 95 officers and 857 enlisted crew, which comes up to 952 people. However, in wartime, she can upgrade to 1,269 people.
0: I mean, your your, your knowledge is... uh vast in this fucking area so and mine is fucking nil nothing except this little wikipedia page i have open here so uh let's go back in time tell us what the mission of the uss indianapolis was like what was their mission when they left the port of san francisco
2: okay before i get to that i want to go over two more things real fast go for it Uh, on the characteristics of the ship now this is a fast ship She would do, her top speed was 32.7 knots, which equals 37.6 miles an hour. Okay. And that comes into play because she broke a speed record going from um, San Francisco to Pearl Harbor. She was extremely up-armored. Now, when they built these ships, and I say up-armored, they built it up. Right. So they built it to go higher.
0: When you say up armored, what is exactly does that mean?
2: So up armored means she was at and more guns were added to her. And the way they added them to her, they 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 built them up towards the top of the ship. OK. And when it throws it off, it doesn't throw it off if the ship is going bow to stern. Right. If it's going if, if you think about like, you know, that rock, that pirate ship at a uh, at a fair. You ever seen that? Yeah. Thing? Yep. It doesn't throw it off if it goes that way. It throws it off if it goes the other way, port to starboard, left to right.
0: Gotcha, okay. And
2: that's what's going to come into play towards the end. So she was a strong ship. She had 19, 20 um, 20 millimeter, Mike, Mike, anti, Mike, Mike means millimeter, uh, anti-aircraft guns. She had nine 8-inch 55 caliber guns, eight 5-inch 25 caliber anti-aircraft guns, two 347, um, she had two. 47 millimeter saluting barriers, batteries, excuse me, uh, and six 40 millimeter anti aircraft guns. Plus, she also carried four seaplanes, which also comes into play.
0: So, this is insane, right? Because she was fully equipped to fight anything that was at sea level and above. Except, yet at sea
2: level and above. She had no sonar.
0: Like, so as you're describing, T Bone, she was fully armed and ready to roll with any kind of air threat in mind that she could take down immediately, right? But in this situation, we're dealing with the exact opposite where she was, I mean, I guess in some ways you would say underprepared.
2: Very underprepared. Now, I don't know if you ever, uh, if you believe in everything happens for a reason or a certain event kicks the rest of the things in line.
0: I don't, but Chris sure does. And Chris is not here tonight. So I'm thinking Chris wasn't here for a reason, (laughs) (laughs) D-Bone. Just fucking, I'm just, I'm just joking.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So... Indianapolis never should have been on this mission. On March 31st, 1945, Indianapolis was in an air fight with Japanese kamikazes, and a kamikaze actually got through her anti-aircraft battery, slammed into Indianapolis, killing nine sailors. No way. At that point, that is when she was sent to San Francisco um, to get fixed up for repair.
0: When uh, a kamikaze fighter or or a plane would not land into a a vessel like this, what kind of damage... Can it cause, I mean, is it to the point where it can cause any kind of sinking?
2: So it depends, obviously depends on where they hit, right? A plane slamming into a ship is not going to sink the ship. Okay. Um, but the idea behind the kamikazes was, was to take the ship out of commission. So the other kamikaze pilots can come in and shoot it. Or one of their subs can come up and hit a sitting duck.
0: But I would think also psychologically too, right? If you have somebody that's out there willing to die and not give a fuck what they're doing, right? Doesn't that play into a role of psychological warfare as well?
2: Well, yeah, because we knew exactly what they were going to do. These guys were not afraid to fly into your ship. You know, as soon as they were done expending all their ammo, they were coming after you. So Indy went to California, San Francisco um, for repair. And then... You know, sometime around July 15th, a vice admiral that was in charge of the Pacific Fleet called the CO to his office. CO means commanding officer. You know, the, the commanding officer of this ship is Captain Charles McVeigh III, and he plays a very, very vital role in this entire story. So on July 15th, 1945, Indianapolis was giving a secret mission. No one on the crew knew what this secret mission was. They knew they had to take cargo they knew they had to take it to the Tinian Islands. They didn't know what it was. All they knew is what they saw. They saw two-cylinder-looking containers and a large crate. And this, the cylinders and the large crate had to be guarded by two army officers 24 hours a day.
0: Now, just looking at this from an outside perspective, so the ship came back in for repair was there another ship on hand that might have been better equipped for this mission than the USS Indianapolis?
2: No, because of her speed. So everybody else was out at sea, right? Remember, you still had a war in the Pacific going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she had just gotten fixed. And what they were trying to do is they, they wanted to get um, Indianapolis over to Leyte, which is in the Philippines, for some follow-on training. And again, towards the end of the war, and if you, if you do the track which is kind of like, you know, a map or whatever. If you do the, uh, like a route, if you do the track from San Francisco through Pearl up to the um, uh, Titan Island, it goes and then it leads right to the Philippines. Are, are they prepared to handle these kind of ships coming in? Yeah, so they, they have, they have um, commercial ports there. Yeah, if you saw a map of this place now and if you looked at it now, it looks like a resort island, right? Obviously, back then during World War II, we fought over this island because sure. it's so close to Japan. And, and we won that. So we were using this as a staging base gotcha. because it was so close to Japan at the time that they got underway. Remember, no one knew it was on the ship, but was actually what was actually on there was a half of the world's supply of enriched uranium and other parts to make the nuclear bomb that was called Little Boy, which was eventually dropped on Hiroshima. And it, it, I got a quote here from um, Lewis Irwin, who was a coxswain on on Indianapolis He says, most people didn't pay attention at first. It was just a typical loading of supplies with a crane, but we knew something was going on. They had guards on station all the time. Of course, (laughs) we didn't know what it was, but we knew it was a big deal, and we were glad to get rid of it by the time we (laughs) reached reached Tinian.
0: Fucking see ya.
2: (laughs) Yeah, bye. (laughs) So on 16 July um, 1945, they got underway from San Francisco to make their track to Pearl Harbor. They went 3,606 miles in 74 and a half hours. Unbelievable speed. 29 knots, 33 miles an hour overall. At that time, it wouldn't be that fast now, but at that time, that was a speed record.
0: So, what are we up to now? What are
2: we looking Um, at now? I can't even tell you because uh, a lot of the top speeds on ships are classified.
0: Oh, oh I do apologize for that.
2: I mean, they but really, they, they they really are. Some of, some of the ships, when they go over a certain speed, when they put up um, a certain RPM, uh, you can't even see the speed you're going because it'll blank out. Everybody has to have a clearance for it. Yeah. So they got they got to um, Pearl Harbor, 19 July. Got a couple of supplies, some more cargo, and then they they left for the Tinian Islands with the expectation to arrive on 26 uh, July. So once they get to the island, right, everything is good. Um, they drop off their cargo. They swapped out some of the crew members. And on 28 July, they got underway for, uh, for Leyte in the, the Philippines. Here's part of the story that, that a lot of people don't hear about. The CO was called in. To, he went in to talk to the Commodore. The Commodore is the, p- the person in charge. Okay. And the CO was extremely concerned. So again, this is a heavy cruiser. And this heavy cruiser has no sonar. So they're making the trip from the islands to the P.I. with no escorts. These ships were always given a destroyer escort because destroyer has sonar. What sonar is going to pick up is everything underneath the water. The commodore, what the commodore goes and tells the captain, he says, don't worry about it. The ocean's calm out there. The Japanese are on their last leg. There's no one out there. You guys are going to go unaccompanied. So on the uh, 28th of July, they got underway. From the islands to Leyte unaccompanied so they get underway on um, the 28th and then our the the day of 30 July 1945 that's when we get hit so but about halfway between Guam and Leyte Gulf on uh, July 30th at balls 14 you can call it okay. 14 a.m right Japanese 158 uh, i58 fired um six torpedoes two torpedoes hit indy
0: at that point catastrophic effects
2: catastrophic effects and to quote seaman first class umenhofer lyle umenhofer he says i was in my skivvies skivvies are underwear yeah i was in my skivvies i jumped up and put on my pants and shirt and i was carrying my shoes and the second torpedo hit I stood there for a few more minutes and then the ship started going over going over to the starboard side so i slid from the To the port side, over the starboard side, hit a hatch, tumbled off into the water, and that's when I wound up in oil.
1: Wow.
0: We're going to get into all that, T-Bone, but I just wanted to branch off of what we talked about off air. And you said the importance of a naval officer having his uniform on and being able to slip into it quickly. You guys are trained to make that uniform buoyant, right?
2: Especially in this day. So our uniforms have changed over the years. The ones that we wear at sea now are more flame retardant. We don't worry about getting hit by a submarine as much. They'll, we can still blow them up to make they make them float. Back in these days, they were the old dungarees. Remember, you ever seen the bell-bottom pants? Yeah. Yep. And they had the, the front pockets. You can tie off the legs on those and then take your belt and you can latch down the waist and you blow into it. And then you put your body... In between where the legs are Ooh, and that's your that could be a makeshift life raft it,
0: it's funny you say that because i was just looking at pictures of my dad today who was a cb in 51 i think 51 through 56 or 55 and they had the bell-bottom pants on
2: mm-hmm. yeah sure did so after indy got hit by 12 30 she was gone right it took her less than 15 minutes to go over she rolled out, here here was what I was talking about, how she was top-heavy, right? So they built the ship up, okay? She rolled over to starboard so fast and then started taking on some water, and the front part of that ship was so heavy that it immediately flipped forward with the stern up and then sunk. And of the, uh, you know, 1,195 people they had on board, approximately 300 went down with that ship.
0: That would go from and I'm assuming drowning being affected by the explosion itself, asphyxiation and just, from, from smoke a, a, any kind
2: of uh
0: affliction that can happen from that 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 type of event.
2: And just being stuck. I mean, you look at Arizona.
0: Trapped. Yeah. Right,
2: yeah. Arizona still has um Arizona's a burial ground. They still have uh, uh, bodies of sailors down. There. When when they went down, they were they were 280 miles from land. That that's that's no hike yeah yeah that's no marathon that's a long long swim so they they were out there so about 900 people went in the water
0: i'm gonna get into uh one of the other shows that we did on uh that we talked about was uh jose alvarenga the salvadoran fisherman and he said that you guys have a tie to him with the the navy as well Yeah. but now let me ask you personally what's the distance that you feel comfortable at As far as if something were to happen and you see land, like how far away from shore do you need to be that you start to feel comfortable? Well, I can make it, or I can get help.
2: Uh, I would say, well, it's a lot of that depends on visibility, but usually you're seeing land anywhere from five to ten miles.
0: Okay, gotcha.
2: Um, but I mean, with, with it's called set and drift, right? So it's how the ocean pushes you, bro. I I would, you're if you're talking about swimming uh, to land with no fins and just a body. Okay. I don't feel comfortable out. If I'm in the water, I would not feel comfortable without no equipment, a quarter of a mile.
0: Really? Oh my God.
2: That's it. A quarter of a mile.
0: So you might as well be docked.
2: Yeah. You might as well be docked. Now you're talking about in the water, no equipment. I can swim a quarter of a mile.
0: No yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You start, but you got to remember, right? So that, that water is pushing you a different way. That current's moving you. That current, you could be like, it could be like running in place.
0: But, and then it's also, you, you have to put in that, that psychological component that we talked about too. Like you, you, you've been attacked yeah. and you don't, maybe it's the middle of the night. You don't know what the fuck's happening.
2: Exactly. You don't know what's happening. And the bad thing about these guys is when they went down, they went down in the middle of shark infested waters.
0: Well, that that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I, I think I talked about it that on the ep- the nautical nightmares episode about have you seen sharks and whatnot so you know they land in water and you would be like all right well they're in warmer waters in the in, in the pacific right the south pacific so your survival rate increases rather than you know than, than the chances of getting hypothermia which eventually comes into play with some of the uh, sailors but it doesn't play out that way because in warmer water yeah you can survive but there's also a greater threat of, and then we come to find out this happens, shark attacks.
2: Absolutely. Shark attacks. And that's where these guys went in. And that's something else. So they go in in the dead of night, right? So they can't see anything.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Going, going back to um, uh, Omafer here, at, talking about the sharks, right? So he says the sun comes up and they see your crystal clear water. They see floating debris and then all of a sudden they look down and they could see sharks. He said he says you'd watch them. You could see the fins coming and and watch them. And then they would go up, get close to you, like they were looking out to you, and then you try to kick them away real quick. Whatever swimming below your feet, you could see. Yeah. So the ship never got out in SOS. They went down entirely too fast. So they they could not inform anybody in the Pacific Theater that they were going down. The way that we track ships now compared to... And one thing that we learned from Indianapolis, that the way we track ships then, the way we used to track ships then... We knew what speed they were going to do when they got underway, and we would calculate it. So they were supposed to arrive. In Leyte, I want to say it was like the 31st of July. They didn't make it. So on the 31st of July, they didn't show up. That's when the Navy got a little paranoid being like, where are they? So, I mean, what what you want to do is
0: hit your opponent in any kind of fight with, with the element of surprise. And that's exactly what happened here. So these guys were hit at 12:15 a.m., thrust into the ocean. They're already dealing with the fact that some of their fellow sailors most likely didn't make it, and we come to find out that 300-plus didn't. Now, they're floating in the darkness of night and maybe the moonlight, but, you know, they survive, but little by little, they start getting bumped and hit by massive sharks. Some sh- sharks that were reported by the sailors themselves to be upwards of 15 feet long, dude.
2: Yeah, and, and to, to quote another survivor, Eugene Morgan a Bosa mate Second Class, he said, all the time, the sharks never let up. We had cargo net on a styrofoam and things attached to it to keep it afloat. There were about 15 sailors on this, and suddenly 10 sharks hit it, and there was nothing left. This went on and on and on. From all reports, they would just be swimming
0: around them all night and then come back in the morning to attack them.
2: You got to think about how that must feel. One of the big things that you guys talk about here on, on BTC is the psychological aspect of this. These guys, and, and rightfully so, they, they started going delirious. And I'm going to read you a quote here from Granville Crane, a second-class machinist mate. He says, and these are all survivors that gave their account. He says, men began drinking salt water. Now, you can't drink salt water, right? Salt water will dehydrate you, and it will make you go crazy, So to go back to Granville Crane here, he says men began drinking salt water so much that they were delirious. In fact, a lot of them had weapons like knives and they'd be so crazy that they'd be fighting amongst themselves and killing one another. And then they then there'd be others that drank so much salt water that they were seeing things. They'd say the Indies down below and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley and they'd swim down and a shark would get them. All you can see was a shark eating your comrade. Obviously, it's hot, right? So it's the Pacific. It's super hot. So they're, the sun's getting them. The water's there. You're taught to drink. Your I mean, your body has a natural instinct to drink water when it's hot out. And they're drinking this. And then, you know, they start, you know, getting illusions of land. They start swimming for it. And they're done.
0: We talked about that in a Jose Alvarenga episode being lost at sea for over a year. I mean, how much of a fucked is it to be thirsty and to be surrounded by water, but you can't have any of it? I mean, isn't that the craziest fucking thing you could think of, right?
2: You're exactly right. And that's why the United States Navy went to talk to him about how he did it for so long, how he did. And we gained so much knowledge from him that we put into play these days.
0: Well, well let's get into that at the end because we want to end on a high note. Because this is very dark, Timon. We want to end on a high note because that's what we do here at at BTC. We we like to end on. We're positive guys, and that's what we do.
2: But you know, I'm glad you you can find a high note because I know you do that. uh, I
0: I try to. I mean, I'm 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 grasping for straws here, but you know, you got. I'm reading some of these other accounts from these sailors, and so even some of the guys that survived initially falling into the water. Right. It was four to five days before these guys were even found. And uh, why don't you tell us, bro, in the midst of all these people
2: perishing, how they were found? So four days, it took four days for help to come for them. And no, the Navy didn't notice that they weren't uh, that there was something wrong until that four days because they didn't pull into port. And again, that's how uh, they used to do it. We would go from port to port by pure luck. There happened to be an air reconnaissance mission by some seaplanes that were flying over the area and they looked down and they saw a sea of people, right? And truly not even a sea. At that point, it was 317 people that remained alive. So out of the 900 that went into the water, 317 were alive at that point. The 1,196 that were on that ship, only 317 were rescued. That left 879 dead.
0: Wow, man. Wow.
2: This right here was the worst tragedy in uh, naval history. But I kind of want to get into the aftermath here. So you, you want to get into some controversy? When everyone was rescued, they start doing an investigation into how this happened. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, the commanding officer of the ship, Charles McVeigh, was brought to a court-martial. Now, Admiral Nimitz, who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet at that time, said No. This is not happening. We're not bringing him to a court-martial. I'll give him a letter of reprimand. And basically what a letter of reprimand is, is saying that you messed up on this. And what he did wrong, what the CO of the ship did wrong, is he wasn't following a zigzag pattern. What they tell you to do with submarines is to use a zigzag pattern as you're moving. That doesn't let the torpedo lock on your target. If you're going straight, the torpedo can lock on your target. Yep. So... Nimitz said no, but at the time, the chief of naval operations, who was Admiral King, overrode Nimitz, Nimitz, and he said yes. And here's where the controversy starts to come in. Now, remember, Captain McVeigh, the, the CEO of the ship, he asked, he said that I want to escort, and they said there's no one out there, the seas are calm, the Japanese are on their last leg, you're going unaccompanied, right? Okay. But to bring it one step further, remember, this, the, uh, Captain uh, McVeigh's father was an admiral in the Navy. Yep. And to, to quote him, he says, this is from Admiral Charles B. McVeigh Jr., and he's talking about Admiral King, who was the chief of naval operations at the time. He says, King never forgot a grudge. King had been a junior officer under the command of McVeigh's father when King and other officers sneaked some women aboard a ship. (laughs) Admiral McVeigh had a letter of reprimand placed in King's record, and for for that, um, McVeigh raged, now King used my son to get back at me.
0: Oh my God.
2: Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. Wasn't his record expunged at some point? Yeah, and we're going to get there. And that's that's if you're gonna pull a good news story out of that, that's what this is. All be. right, laid on me. So before I get there, I got to get to some more dark parts. So on sixth of November, 1968, Captain McVeigh committed suicide by a service rep, weapon. Oh my God! When he died, he was holding a toy soldier that he received as a kid, um, and he had it in his hand. He was holding it for good luck. There was no note. They said that he died a very lonely man. His wife had uh, died a couple years earlier from cancer. And his entire life, he received letters and phone calls from family members of the sailors that went down on Indianapolis um, blaming him. And he always blamed himself. The survivors of Indianapolis, they worked tirelessly to clear the CO's name tirelessly. They just were like going to work and nothing was working trying to get the CO's name cleared until some 12 year old kid named Hunter Scott doing a project for his school. He ended up interviewing 150 survivors. He looked at over 800 documents and wrote, made this big project that Congress, Congress ended up seeing and Newt Gingrich, at the time, who was was at the Speaker at the House, passed a resolution to clear McVeigh's name.
0: That's unbelievable.
2: Isn't that a twelve year old kid? Just a couple of notes, though, just to talk about some lessons learned that the Navy learned out of this. Uh one, we do a thing called move reps now, right? It, a move rep is is basically short short wordage for a movement report. Okay. So, so ships have to report their movement every four hours, right? So every four hours, they have to report their movement. Every four hours, we have to send a report off talking about our movement, you know? So we do the move rep now. And the other, the other lesson learned, any high value asset, like an aircraft carrier goes nowhere without somebody riding shotgun. And then we call it shotgun. Yep. Um, The ship has to have sonar. So the other ship, aircraft carriers aren't equipped with sonar, so the other ship has to have sonar. Makes sense. That's the story of Indianapolis, brother.
0: Thank you so much for being here and just spewing all this knowledge that, I mean, you can't pick up on a Wikipedia page like Chris was. I mean, I do my my due diligence when I'm researching, but Chris likes to hang out on Wikipedia. So we thank you very much for giving us an in-depth look at, at this. This is just remarkable.
2: Good stuff. Hey, man, I'm happy to be here. Anytime you want me back, you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I let him build a little bit so I can uh, listen to him when I'm cutting along <laughs> or driving or something. Um, but you, you guys are you guys are doing your class act. Well, well, if,
0: if you wait, the longer you wait, you know, the better we might get. So, uh, we, <laughs> so once you do officially retire, we can have, uh, um, have you on here a little bit more and uh, make you part of our more disgusting uh, joke aspects of the show. I like it. All right, bro. Thank you very much, man.
2: Yeah, man. Be good.
0: All right, bro. I'll see you later. So that's it, everybody. That was our interview with T-Bone and we do thank him so very much for being with us. So Chris, I wanted to have T-Bone on because I thought it was a great way and a very interesting way to get a different perspective about this whole story. Rather than just having us sitting here, you know, reading facts and whatnot, he actually comes at it with the perspective of an actual naval officer. So he gives us a whole different insight to the inner workings of the ship, the crew on board and not only that but the, the psychological aspect of all of it as well. I found it really fascinating and he talked about learning from this and what the US Navy has done since then and uh you, as you probably heard is that he even talked about Jose Alvarenga and uh, you know the US Navy contacting him and talking to him about the mindset needed to survive. I think that that's the important thing here is not only learning from these different kind of tragedies, but knowing what kind of preventative measures to take it. not only physically, but psychologically as well, and, and having that mindset and that survival instinct and, and the sheer determination to survive. So I thought that was really interesting.
1: It is interesting, and, and too, like you mentioned with the Alvaranga situation and what these men that survived must have... Gone through, and it it's obviously a little different than Alvarang. Obviously, Alvarang was on his own; he was at least in a ship, but he was not. He was in no better situation in terms of uh, you know surviving, but it's just. Can you imagine being a part of a war? And obviously, there's nothing that can prepare somebody mentally for warfare unless you've been in one already. But like then. On top of that, having to deal with falling in the water and and now just waiting every second that goes by could be your last because you don't know when a shark could come and get you. Or I I mean, I just can't imagine. Talk about PTSD, ever ever go back in the water again. I I can't imagine anyone wanted to after that.
0: Well, that's one of the things that uh, T-Bone touched upon too is that these guys think about this event every day so you had kids that were probably 18 19 years old and now they're in their 90s right and for the surviving members of it they still meet yearly and they plan on doing that for as long as time permits it's just such an insane event that there would never be any escaping it how could you not think about that daily and this is one of the things that we like to talk about here on the podcast is just the sheer determination and the will to survive and i mean These gentlemen had proven that more than anybody else I've ever heard of or read about in my life. So, I mean, hats off to them. What brave young men to have survived such an ordeal. So that is it, Chris. That is the case of the USS Indianapolis. And I hope everybody found the episode very interesting and informative not by any of our doing chris but uh by t by bones in-depth knowledge and research on this case we really once again do appreciate that he's only going to make us look better because uh we did not have much time this week because bud we are planning for our one year anniversary i got all the balloons and the streamers and the champagne
1: we are ready to roll mind you we don't know what we're doing it on.
0: No, yet. we have no clue. <laughs> but but Timmy is on his way back from California. Blue Balls is uh, stampeding here from Montana as we speak. Uh, well, so let's
1: not forget Robert the Doll. From Robert Florida. the
0: Doll. Craig T. Nelson. All of our <laughs> cast of characters will be here, <laughs> and uh, in my son's room where I record this for our one-year anniversary extravaganza. So um, I'll text you later on tonight, Chris, and maybe I'll throw a few cases your way to see what the hell we want to do. We will not have T-Bone here to bail us out next week, Chris. We are on our own. <coughs> this is not going to end well, is it, Chris? <laughs> so, Never does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So with all that said, bud, let me get the quick rundown. If you uh, want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. If you want to get on Facebook, a fucking site that I'm done with, they can go fuck themselves. You can get Chris there. That is on uh, Between Not the Cracks. Not for much longer. Yeah, Between the Cracks podcast on Facebook. Whatever. Fuck that thing. I'm letting it go. Uh, I got the Instagram thing. I post a couple little pictures there, but they're on their fucking way out, too. So get us while we're hot on there. And uh, uh, The best way to get us would be by email now. But we also do have the Patreon page, which is in the show notes. You can just click on that and become a patron, and you can see all the things that we offer. Uh, We have a bunch of patrons now, and we're looking to make that grow into a larger community. And uh, we have a lot of exciting things uh, in store. And we also have the merch store which is in the show notes as well. Just click on the link for our Teespring store, or BTC, whatever the fuck it is, and uh, get yourself some nice merchandise there. And, uh, you know, have some fun with all this. What the hell can I tell you? So uh, <laughs> with all that said, Chris, I think it's time we bid the fine, fine people out there in podcast land the fondest, oh, farewell.